Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 200. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is, in fact, episode number 200. Just in case you thought you might be listening to episode 50 or 100 or 150 or 175 for that matter, it is episode 200. Yeah. And uh, wow, that's a lot of podcasts. I tell people that. What episode are you on? Well, I'm coming up on 200. Oh my God, how long have you been doing that? Yeah, it's been quite a journey and such uh, an amazing journey at that to listen to the stories of uh, audio professionals telling of their survival, of their journeys, of how they handle this business. And when I first started, I wasn't really interested in talking about gear as much as other publications and media formats. I was more interested in hearing about people's journeys with a little bit of gear talk sprinkled in there. You know, that's how it goes. But uh, man, it's been great. And it's been very successful, really, because of all of you who listen. And I and I, I've thanked you before. I'll thank you again, and I'll continue to thank you. Thank you a thousand times over for listening to this show. It is an absolute pleasure to bring it to you. So that said... I am so excited about this guest today. He is uh, somebody I've admired for a long, long time, since the mid-90s when I first heard his name and said, who did that? And his discography is extensive, and the work he has done is full of character and intriguing sounds that constantly make me go, how did he do that? Not only that, he is an absolute gentleman and and a real treat to uh, hang out with. I was very fortunate to spend time with him at uh, Mix with the Masters. It was about a year ago, actually. It was in, um, wrapped up around September 2017. So here we are, just about a year later, a little over, and uh, he's here on the show. And I'm talking about the one and the only Chad Blake. Many of you know that I have mentioned his name time and time again, and uh, I'm just beside myself over the fact that he is on the show today. So Chad Blake coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. All right, friends, grab your coffees or your teas or your beers or whatever you're drinking. I'm drinking coffee as usual. And if you need to pause the show to go grab that, I'll I'll wait here for you. (laughs) I'm drinking a a fantastic cup of coffee, courtesy of WCA listener Nick Krill. Nick, thank you so much. Uh, Nick sent me uh, a bag of beans that is outstanding. Really good stuff. That's been the side benefit of doing this show, is people know how much I love coffee, so they send me beans, which, you know... That's, that's, that's not me being passive aggressive, asking you all to send me beans. If you want to send beans, that's fine. But I'm just saying thank you to those who have, that's been really great. Um, so look, I went back to the website this morning and 
I took a look at the very first post. Well, the very first show, there was actually some blog posts leading up to the actual podcast. And WCA001 is interesting, number one, because it was uh, originally published September 15th, 2014. Yeah. And honestly, just to be a little self-critical, although it comes from the heart, it does kind of sound a little amateur this many episodes down the line. I definitely got into a, uh, a flow and a system of doing things, so that, that one sounds a little uh, funny to me. But still, it was the start. You got to start somewhere, right? So uh, what have I learned? I've been doing this now for a while, and here we are at you know 200 episodes down the line. Well, I got to tell you that this show has been very cathartic for me because... You know, you talk to that many people, you tend to absorb some good information and you really start to uh, do a lot of self-evaluation. And one of the reasons I started this show was I was just having a rough time with it, you know, and really kind of puzzled as to how to make this work. Even after doing it for a number of years, I was I was still perplexed and uh, had a lot of, truthfully, even at the age I'm at, had a lot of maturing to do and a lot of growing up to do and a lot of reworking of things that had to be done in my life. So the podcast really had served as a way for me to ask questions that were pressing in my mind. So I have to thank all my guests really for kind of guiding me through that time period. Where I was at 2014 versus where I'm at right now, man, what a difference. Things are just so much different and so, so much better too. Family life, work life, got a good work-life balance happening. And uh, the podcast has really helped focus me personally. So I've thanked you all a thousand times and I'll continue to thank you. I want to thank you sincerely for listening and for making the show popular spreading the word because uh it's it's really helped me personally and i hope it's uh helped you all i i I get a lot of fantastic notes as you all know i've mentioned that many many times many emails many facebook messages (laughs) many bags of coffee uh from all of you who have benefited according to your own stories from the podcast and that was an unexpected thing that happened so yeah it's been good So where do we go from here? Well, you know, uh, I've mentioned along the way that I've thought about going down a few paths and truthfully, you know, I've explored a few kind of like fly-by-night options of what to do next with the show or around the show. And I've just had to uh, look at those ideas and many of them just were like, they weren't coming from the right place. So I I just kind of let them go. So Video seems to always be one of those things that is looming and editing video, man, that's, that's a real pain in the ass, but you know, it's a powerful medium. So yeah, it's, it's something that, uh, I'll eventually get into. Yeah. I do have some, some news though. Uh, I've been talking about a project that I've been working on and it's eminent that it's coming out and it's coming out here at the end of the year. It's going to be a book series put out by Hal Leonard. It's the Working Class Audio Journal. Yep. 
transcriptions of some select interviews with some other information in there. Uh, yeah, it's uh, coming out at the end of the year. And uh, I'll tell you more as, as the uh, first book comes out. But the idea is to put out a number of these per year. So, yeah, Working Class Audio Journal. Coming to a bookstore near you. Yeah. Well, that's it. I think it's time to get to it. Let's talk with our friend Chad Blake here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. First of all, welcome to the podcast. And it goes without saying, I'm really super happy to have you on. I appreciate you asking. This is cool. Well, I've long been a fan and uh, actually we're recording this in advance in September and it was in September of 2017, actually, that we were at La Fabrique together at Mix with the Masters, I believe. If I, if I am doing my dates right, according <laughs> to the certificate I have behind me. And there's a big time difference between us for the audience and it's 5 a.m. for me and I believe it's 1 p.m. for you. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. And what's what's funny about this to me is this brings it all back to la fabrique is that when i was at mix with the masters with you i could i think i could easily say that you and i were the two oldest guys there and inevitably we would always be the first two guys up in the morning at breakfast and either you would beat me there or i would beat you there and one way or the other I think I spent every morning eating with you, and we, we had some great chats. I, that's something I fondly remember. Yeah, that was nice. I like those early mornings at, at La Fabrique. Wonderful time. It was a good place to be. So let's just jump in. I want to go a little bit to the beginning of not only of your career, but of your life. You're from Baytown, Texas. Is that correct? That's correct. Tell me about growing up in Baytown, and where is that located? It's pretty much due east of Houston, maybe a little bit south. I'd have to look on a map to remember exactly. But yeah, if you go east of Houston, then uh, towards Louisiana, you get to the Bay Area. There's a big bay that comes in. Exxon Corporation is down there. My granddad worked at Exxon Corporation his whole life on my father's side. My father was from Louisiana, Brobridge, Louisiana. Uh, Cajun folk down from Canada. That's sort of my, my heritage. Do you know, we shuffled about a lot. So I don't remember growing up in Baytown. I do remember times in Baytown, uh, barbecues and fig trees and motorcycles down to the bayous and armadillo hunting. That was pretty weird when I think of it. Because um, <laughs> there was, um, they used to have rice fields down there and the, the um, farmers would let you go into their property and they wanted you to get rid of the armadillos because they were digging up the rice fields. And I'd saved my money for mowing lawns and bought myself a six-shooter pistol, 22. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, what, 11 or 12 years old. I had my first rifle when I was eight or nine and I had my first pistol when I was 11 or 12. It was a real pistol, twenty-two caliber. And so you'd go out armadillo hunting. Yeah, I'd go out and um, you know do that during the day, and then we could stay at night and gig for frogs for breakfast the next morning. You know, when I think back on it, it's pretty awful because the armadillos are just—they can't see, they can't hear, <laughs> they're slow. You know what? It's such a silly thing to do, but 
I did it. I wish I hadn't in, in some ways, but I do have fond memories of the time in that area. My uncles would put me on a motorcycle. You know, these are the days without helmets, too. You plop me on the back of his motorcycle, big old, um, I think it was a Harley, and drive for you know an hour down to these places and spend spend a couple of days down in these weird like water areas like wetlands it's just have frogs and snakes and spiders that are five inches and the lakes being, <laughs> you know it was crazy i loved it i absolutely loved it now did you go to high school in baytown or did you did you move somewhere else for that move somewhere else we ended up moving my father was a a dancer, trained ballet dancer. My folks met in a dance school. He was teaching dance school, and they met and fell in love and got married. And it was better for my dad to move out west, Los Angeles. Well, first San Francisco, yeah. that didn't work out, I guess, because we must, I think we only spent about a year up there, and then moved down to Los Angeles, where there was just more prospects of work. You know, in the mm-hmm. film industry, he was doing films, and he was, he was a bit dancer in a few... Big movies like West Side Story and some Barbra Streisand things. And your dad was in West Side Story. He was, yeah. He was a very small couple of parts, but you can see him. He was in the original production, the Jerome Robbins production of West Side Story, in the late fifties that toured Europe. So I was over here actually when I was in like fifty nine and sixty. Uh, we lived in the UK and France and a little bit in Denmark um, when he was traveling with Jerome Robbins Ballet USA and West Side Story. That was pretty weird. What was your mom doing at that time? She was taking care of us. She had been a model, you know, just a local, like in uh, around uh, Baytown, (laughs) doing little magazines and stuff. No, she just took care of us and... um, yeah, I, I remember, I have, again, really fond memories. My childhood, I think it was pretty good. Um, it, it wasn't easy. We lived in basements. My dad didn't make much money. No heating. We used to wear two or three coats because it was so cold in the UK, and we were living in a basement. And um, and I remember my mom saying she worried about us all the time. Just It was so cold. And he went out. He went doing the shows while we had certain places that we lived it's colorful to me i don't remember the hardship i just remember how cool it was we ended up in los angeles and that's where i went to high school that's that's where i went did almost all my school except for a few years where i went back to texas to live uh, when my parents um split i had read that in an interview with you that you used to carry around recorders all the time and you would record the sounds of noises just doors shutting ambient sounds even as a young kid. Can you tell me about that? Sure. I wasn't that young when that all started. I played guitar a little bit as a kid, and I played guitar a little bit in high school. It was the thing I got into because all the musicians had the best drugs, so I wanted to be friends. And uh, I um, I learned how to play guitar pretty quickly, You know, just records, listening to records, and got okay. Had a couple of bands, and you know, we used to play functions, little high school things, and jam a lot. I wasn't great, but I was okay. And that got me into sounds because I liked some pretty weird, well, what was considered kind of weird, wonky music. I really loved it when people stood pop music on its head and and did odd things with it. There was a guy named Law Coxhill who was a saxophone player over here. 
he was one of my heroes. He he did a cover of I Am the Walrus that is just incredible. Look it up if you can find it. Walcox, I Am the Walrus. I don't know if it's anywhere. I have it on vinyl somewhere. And there was uh, people, there was guitar players that I really liked. Fred Frith, who used to play with bits of mirrors and uh, put alligator clips on the strings. He did treatments, and so did uh, Keith Tippett. Um, who was a keyboard player who did some work with King Crimson. They all did treatments and did weird stuff with their instruments, but then they played beautiful music incorporating these weird sounds. And I really liked that. I really got me into the sound of things. And I remember going to school and then started hearing things, especially, I don't know how you, what you'd call it, but it's like, almost like baffled music where you'd walk down a hallway and hear a couple of, you know, in a school and there'd be rehearsal rooms and all the doors are closed. But in one, you've got a guy playing a trumpet. Over here, you've got somebody playing a piano. Down here, you got somebody playing guitar. And it's all coming through muffled into the hallway. And I just loved it. I just used to go walk in the hallway to hear it. So I got myself a little cassette. You know, it's just a mono cassette recorder. And... I started buying, you know, at Thrifty down at the corner. I could get Thrifty Drugstore, which was a drugstore. I don't know if it's still around in the States, but um, you could buy these packs of cassette tapes that were an hour and 20 minutes for one tape, and you'd get them for a couple of dollars. you get a pack of six or something. And, I, I'd, um, <laughs> yeah. and I'd, I'd wake up in the morning and put a tape in, and then carry the machine with me. And I'd, I'd go into the bathroom, do my teeth, you know, take a shower, do my teeth, go down and get my ride to school. Or if I had the car by then, I'd get in the car, you'd hear it starting up, door shut, get to school, walk through school. And I just made tapes of hours, as many hours as I could of the day. And then I just loved listening to it at night. There was something about the contrast taking these sounds of the outdoors of everyday life and then listening to them indoors at home at night. You know, you just hear all this stuff in it. And it, I don't know, it, it had an emotional impact on me. It's interesting. It's, it's, it's definitely a precursor to your adventures with binaural recording. Yeah. And I'm curious if you still have any of those tapes. If you do, I, I bet they would bring back a, a hell of a lot of memories. Oddly enough, I did find I did find some tapes not too long ago that I haven't I haven't tried putting them in yet. You know, I I don't know. I have to I have to see what's on these. But I named I would name the sides different things. This one's called Kennelwise. Don't know what that was meaning for me, and that, and this one's called hundred best songs," <laughs> but it's basically, but it's basically me. It's not songs. I didn't compose songs. Um, and this is what is this? What's the date on here? Gosh, I don't even know how to open this cassette case. It's so cool, this cassette case. They made things cool. So this is um, this is nineteen seventy two. So that's that's kind of a later one, but um, it's like a little time capsule. It, yeah, I hope it works. I really hope it works. If I put it in the cassette, I want to hear what it sounds like. 
but very interesting that that you were doing that at that period of time knowing you know what you would get into later with binaural recording so that's fascinating to mm. me well then do you know the inspiration a lot of the inspiration came from the bands i was listening to as well there's pink floyd who you know adam hart mother was yeah such a wonderful <laughs> record and used found sounds amaguma which is maybe my favorite pink floyd record that uh, had sounds in it the beatles white album had some great sounds in it and there, there's other things i can't think of and then there was you know electronic music that i was quite into the that band noi and um oh, what were some of those late i can't think of them now the late 60s early 70s band like soft machine and caravan maybe they were later but they were all just experimental you know really trying different stuff and that I, I found that very inspirational. So those bands were inspiring you to go and record these sounds. It inspired me to listen to sounds. I didn't know what I was going to do with them. I wasn't really a composer. I wasn't that crazy about being in bands. But it inspired me to listen to sounds, hearing not just music, hearing music and weird sounds and incorporated to make you know this. The, the sum of that to me was more interesting than just music. You've uh, hinted at it earlier in our conversation, and I've heard about it elsewhere, where you were an okay guitar player, but ultimately that wasn't to be your calling. And I also had heard that you, you were living in Los Angeles and went to Wally Hyder's studio and started knocking on the door, you know, trying to get in the door and... and make yourself known can you tell me about what inspired you to go to wally hyder's place yeah my school days weren't so good i didn't do very well i ended up being a bit of a druggie in school and uh lsd was my drug of choice again fond fond memories i, I don't you know advise anybody to take it but i would never tell anybody not to take it i think that really opened me up a lot got me into listening to music in different ways. And I didn't know what to do. I just, I, I kind of dropped out of school, although I, I did graduate. My, I wasn't going to graduate. My mom went in and begged, said, just said, look, do you think by having him here for another year, he's going to do any better? And they agreed with her. So they, they ended up giving me, you know, D's instead of fails. So at least I got out of school and I wasn't going to go to any other school. So a job was kind of, you know, what could I do? And I think I played around in some bands, but I, you know, I just wasn't, I just don't, I just don't think I had what it was going to take to be a great guitar player in a band. And I started thinking of other things. And in the meantime, I got some work. My mother had been doing some work. She was a secretary for some TV people. And um, I did eventually get a job as a runner for a, a special show called Sharks, The Killing Machine. And it had Henry Fonda as the narrator and Ron and Valerie Taylor, who were divers and people who studied sharks. In fact, they were the ones who I think were brought in for the Jaws films to be consultants and they provided footage of the real stuff because they would go in and film sharks and Valerie would get in the water in just a wetsuit with 
about 5,000 sharks. We'd go out, out <laughs> off the coast of California. We chummed with horse meat for sharks in a big, huge circle, just throwing horse blood and meat over. I think it was horse meat. And mm -hmm. um, waited for the sharks. And when, when you could just see the water was just lousy with sharks, you'd just jump in. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you know, if they came swimming at her, she'd bop them on the nose. And she was something. Anyway, the show, um, I got hired uh, to be a runner and photographer. And in doing it, they needed, they needed somebody else. They needed a boom man uh, when, when the show got going. And, and the guy directing it, I hope I remember this right, the guy directing it, his name was Nick Webster, and he had a son, Brett Webster. And um, Brett was young. I think he was my age at the time, or maybe he was a little bit older. I, I don't remember, early 20s or 20 and um, he was the sound guy. He was doing the Nagra, and I was his boom man. And we became good friends. He is a really very cool guy. He and his dad used to go to the mountain, you know, like went to Nepal to try to find Yeti, you know, and do a show. On the <laughs> so they, they were those kind of guys. They were pretty inspirational. And I, I would hang with, um, with Brett every now and then, not very often, but. And one day he said, you know, we were talking about work and what to do, and uh, and he said, you know, you could, you could work as an engineer. You can get a job as an engineer. I said, well, what do they, what do, they do? And um, he said, well, I, look, I just got this invitation to go to an AES show. Why don't you go? Take it. I'm not going. So he gave me his invitation. I went to an AES show and came back with all this literature and sat and read it. And coincidentally, about a month later, I got asked to play a solo on somebody's demo and I went to the studio, and it was Wally Hyder Studios on Co Selma and Coinga. Studio 3, one that Tom Waits, I didn't know this at the time, but Tom Waits did a ton of records in there. And I did my solo, and I went and talked to the engineer, and he just, um, his name was Peter Granite. It's funny I remember that. That's weird. Um, so much, I, can't, <laughs> I can't remember where I put my glasses, and I'm remembering all this stuff. Yeah, Peter Granite, and... He was really nice, really sweet guy. And he was saying, yeah, this is a great job, man. It just, it's so cool. And, and all the people they work with and the hours can be lousy, but you're having fun. You know, what could be better? And I'm like, well, that's pretty cool. Um, I think I like this, you know? So that week I, I started going back to that studio, to Wally Hyder's, pounding on the door, looking for a job. No, nothing, nothing open. Um, and I think I went to a couple of others around there. Next door was the Hollywood Sound, um, mm. right next door to that. And then there was a place down the road, Gold Star, you know, the old Gold Star Studios down about half a mile away. And um, anyway, I just started hitting the studios that were in that area, knocking on the doors. Huh. It, it got to be a joke at Wally Hyder's, you know, come in and I didn't have to say anything. No, not today. <laughs> You know, and I walk out, and one day I walked in, and you know, same thing. I walked in, went up to a little front reception area, and said, "Could you start today?" And I said, "Yeah, yes." I said, "We need somebody on the phones down in the other building, which was the RCA building on Sunset Boulevard, across from the Cinerama Dome, that Wally Hyder had acquired the studios, their old RCA studios, two big, big studios." Studio B, which is where the Rolling Stones did their first three records, I think. And then, you know, Frank Sinatra and Elvis Presley, all sorts of people worked in these rooms. 
They wanted me on phones. I said, yeah, okay. At night, start at night, like six in the evening and work till seven the next morning. And I went down there. They showed me what to do, how to make the coffee, how to keep the toilets clean, a couple of plants to water, showed me you know, just the different rooms, I places I needed to know, uh, ways, parking and all that kind of stuff. And then they left me there on my, <laughs> at, the, at the front. <laughs> I sat there and some people came in. I didn't know who they were at the time, but it was some uh, engineer and producer came in, went into the studio. Hi, nice to meet you. Uh, hey, could you go? You know, go get me some fries or something. There's a couple of places that you could run and get stuff. I said, yeah, yeah, sure, okay. And um, I did all that. And I guess it was about midnight. And and the door opened and a foot came in. Just a foot. <laughs> and because it was one of those self-closing hydraulic door things. You know. And then a shoulder and an arm kind of wiggled in. And it was a long hallway. Must have been about 30 feet long hallway that led right to my desk and then this body came in <laughs> sort of put put a shoulder up to the wall and walked in but with shoulder sliding on the wall like for support <laughs> it was so funny and then he came up to the desk and pulled out a hundred dollar bill never saw me just i don't i didn't see his eyes look at me or anything pulled out a hundred dollar bill and threw it on the desk and said could you get me some ribs? And I said, yeah. Because it was Houston's, just Houston's barbecue, which was just a block over, famous for their barbecue, proper barbecue. And um, I said, yeah. And he walked away into the studio. And that was Keith Richards. Oh. <laughs> and then as the evening progressed, people, other people came in. And that was an odd night because he was, as I remembered, he was the first one in that that night but every other night it was ron wood he was always first would that have been uh some girls or tattoo you that they were working on it was right after some girls so it was emotional rescue it was chris kimsey producing the i know the assistant engineer was sean fallon and i, I don't remember it was chris kimsey engineering yeah i'll tell you what they had carts literally carts of two inch tapes and those tapes probably traveled the world to all these different studios they had been in. You know, I think there were tapes that were definitely a year, year and a half old, 16 track and 24 tracks, I think. And they were just traveling with them. And they, they just recorded everything. They were just so into jamming and, and, and hearing a, a moment and going, that is the shit, you know? And um, I yeah. loved, I just absolutely loved their approach. It was just phenomenal to see them come in, just be loose, man, and have an open mind in all regards. <laughs> you know, totally. It's wonderful. Wonderful to see. I'm a Stones fan for sure. So this is fascinating for me to hear, hear you talk yeah. about. Yeah, that was my first week in a studio. Did that cement your thoughts of, wow, I kind of want to do this? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I went sort of in my head. I just went, you know. It didn't matter what I did. They could make me the janitor of the place. I wanted to be the best janitor. You know, if, if somebody wanted me to clean cables for the uh, the remote truck that came in, I wanted to clean them. And I don't know if I actually did the best job. I'm just saying that's what my goal was. I went into the studios every every morning, every night. I sharpened pencils. I made sure, you know, pieces of the paper. There was every size pad in there for the producers and engineers i dusted the consoles i cleaned the patch cords 
I was obsessed. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. Where was there a point in, in your, from that entry point into the world of the studio, where did you actually get to graduate beyond that and become an assistant or become an engineer? Yeah, the scene in those days was great. You had engineers uh, that would come in the studio. And I think I remember the first, the first one that I remember asking me, n- not officially, but just saying, hey, just come hang. You know, if you want to get off phones when you're off work, come and hang was Tim Boyle, a Los Angeles engineer. He would be working at Studio C and and he would he would see me out running and getting tape for people and going and getting food and doing my thing and cleaning the coffee and he'd just say, Hey, you know, you wanna do you wanna come hang in the studio when you're hmm. off work? I go, Yeah. And I would. I'd go in and invariably somebody, you know, the the tape op would be busy and, you know, somebody would say, I need another microphone or we need a, ch- a cable change. Do we need this? And, and you know, I didn't know that I could do that, but they just say, can you do that? And I said, yes, I'll, do, I'll go do it. And, you know, you just end up being another assistant, you know, on your own time. But, but that was how things worked then, you know, and then other people hear that you're doing things good. And, and somebody says, hey, you want to come on my session? You want to come on my session? Um, and then I, there was one point where I, I got asked to set up a big orchestra session for a film soundtrack that was going to come in. So I set up, it wasn't huge, it was like a 60-piece thing with headphones and, you know, had help setting up, you know, all the, all the cables and the chairs and like we did, everybody helped each other out. And then I went inside, made sure all the, everything was working, and I sat there and this guy came through the door with a bunch of papers in his hands and he looked at me and said, are you ready? I said, uh, what do you mean? Are you ready to go? Can we just get started? And it, I, I clocked it that there's no engineer coming. <laughs> you know, like. Um, <laughs> and the cool thing was is that I had been allowed the, the before that the studio was really cool with letting you come in off hours and play around. So I could have a friend come in and play piano, or I could play guitar, and dick around. I used to bring a turntable in and, and alter the sounds of my records with a harmonizer and compressors and EQ and um, <laughs> and um, make tapes. And so I knew how everything worked because they allowed you to do that on your own time. I could, you could stay all night, you know, overnight, sleep at the studio. It, it was such a I loved it. And um, anyway, so I knew how everything worked. Um, I didn't have any experience, but anyway, I said, can you give me about eight minutes? And he said, yeah, I'll go out and we'll warm up and we'll do some tuning. I'll talk them through it. Okay. And I I'd watched a few sessions. There was a guy named Ed Green who used to do a lot of string sessions, and he was amazing. And um, I watched him a lot, and I just tried to do what he did. And I brought things up, listening to them run down certain cues and this and that, and got the sound as best I could. And uh, you know, the guy turns around and says, "Look, can we record a cue?" "Yep, okay, let's go." Punch it in to record. We did a few cues, I think, 
and he came in and listened and said, you know, I'm, I'm scared shitless, you know? And he came in and listened and he said, yeah, great. Uh, let's move on. He went out there and after, after he went out, I, I don't know how many minutes it was, but the studio president, Wally Heiders, studio president, all of a sudden the door opens and he rushes in and he's looking around out in the studio. He's looking around and he, he finally looks at me at, behind the desk and he's going, looking around, looks out to the studio, to the conductor who's getting ready to do something and looks at me and he's saying, is everything okay? I said, yeah, it's all, I think so. It, it's all, all's real good. <laughs> and he went, okay, I'd like to, um, I'd like to talk to you after when you're done. I said, okay. So somebody had obviously gone and said to him, you know, hey, do you know Chad's down in there engineering something? The, the string date? <laughs> and and I, it all went okay. It, 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 it just kind of flew by. And, you know, I, I don't remember my conversation with, uh, it was Terry Stark who did the, <laughs> and rushed in the studio. <laughs> What's going on? And, um, and he was so cool. And he was the guy who's, you know, he, he so supported me Whenever I wanted to do something in the studio at night, you know, you just make sure the security's good. You know, I even had a night where I was in the studio and somebody came, you know, tried to break in the door. And, you know, these days that kind of stuff happens and, and, and broke the glass, you know, and I, I'm responsible. And he said, look, I understand this is beyond your control, but he still let me come in. Still let other, not just me, it was other people too, he let come in. He was just support, so supportive of that kind of stuff. It was amazing. In your session that, that you were doing for the string date, yeah. did you at any point reveal to the conductor that... Never. Wow. No, never, never saying. I don't remember the film. I think it was a pretty funky, like, beef horror film or something. But it's, um, I don't remember at all what it was. Yeah. But still, the, um, the intimidation factor of a, even a 60-piece orchestra and a conductor. Whew, wow. Yeah. What was the takeaway from your time at Wally Hyders, uh, in terms of your overarching uh, thoughts about Wally Hyders? How you know either how it was run or the things you learned? I have a story about that, which will sum it up. I think um, I'd been through a lot of different things, and I I was have always been inspired by science and logic reasoning. I loved that, uh, and I tried to take some of it in school. I wasn't very good at it, but and philosophies and stuff. And I, I had done my reading as a lot of people do in their teens and stuff. Um, you know, with Ayn Rand, the the Fountainhead, and Atlas Shrugged. I don't know if you know those books. Um, mm -hmm. And I loved the basic premise of of those books. You know, have how you know really uh, nothing's really more important than honesty and. You only have to be honest with yourself. And the follow-on from that is that you'll be honest with everybody else. So if you're brutally honest with yourself, that's really the number one only thing you have to be concerned with. And that'll be your guide to having integrity um, and, and doing the best you can at whatever. It doesn't matter what job you have. What matters is how you perform it, right, in a nutshell. And so with, with Wally, I, I got some lessons in the real world. That's, that's the, you know, reading books and things. And a lot of people hate Ayn Rand these days, but I think they don't understand, actually understand what they've read. Because everything I read that's negative about it is, seems wrong to me, absolutely wrong. We can talk about that some <laughs> other time. Um, right. But, and I'll talk to anybody about that some other time. But uh, f 
I got a lot of lessons in my career working with people who are really thoughtful and supportive. And and Wally Hyder was one of those. And he looked out for his employees. And, you know, the illustration, it's not a big illustration, it's just a little illustration, but it was something that, that it was big for me. It was huge for me. And uh, I'll always remember it. I was asked to come in, um, you know, I, I had just done a little bit of assisting and stuff, but I was asked to come in on a Sunday. Somebody had called and through Wally and booked the studio to do a transfer. They wanted to do a transfer from an eight track to a 24 track. That's what it was. And so Wally said, you can do that, right? And I said, yeah. So, okay, well, come in on, you know, pay you time and a half, come in on a Sunday. Uh, great. I got to the studio and the people come in and they have an eight track tape, but it's, it's a quarter inch eight track. Hmm. And I said, you know, we don't have a quarter inch eight track. And they said, well, well, we booked this, we booked the studio. And I said, well, okay, um, hmm. uh, well, let me make a phone call. So I called, I called Wally and, um, and he said, so what's the problem? Well, these people are here and they say they're a little bit upset and I, I can't do the transfer. I said, well, why not? I said, well, the tape is a quarter inch. He said, what? It's a quarter inch eight track. What? Um, I'll be down in, in 10 minutes. I'll be there 20 minutes or something. And he waited and he, he got there. He kind of stormed into place and he said, went up to the people that were, were waiting in the lobby. He went up to him and said, I just, I just have some information for you. Okay. This is a professional recording studio. Where's the tape? Said, this is a non-professional recording format. You're going to have to go somewhere else. And I, I'm really, and he looked at me and he said, Chad, I'm so sorry to bring you in on a Sunday and waste your time. Wow. And, and he pulled out $30 from his pocket and said, here, I'm really sorry. This, this, you know, I'll make sure this won't happen again. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Pretty. It may not have been an eight track. Now it might've been a four track. It doesn't matter, but you see the, the story. And, um, that was a big takeaway from Wally Hyder's recording for me. This guy was heavy, man. He was a heavy hitter. Knew how to run a studio, apparently. Well, he did know how to run a studio. He knew how to record shit, too. He was one of the guys who would go to clubs with two 47s and a little tape deck and record jazz bands, document hundreds, hundreds, and hundreds of tapes he has or had. Uh, I don't know what happened to him, but, I mean, tons of stuff that he recorded. He knew what he was doing, and he... He he just had such confidence, and he just seemed like a, a man of just full integrity to me. Fast forward me to where you met Mitchell Froome. Wally Hydras fell apart, driven into bankruptcy by bad management after Wally left, and I ended up working at a studio called Mad Dog Studios down in Venice, California, tiny little place. Dusty Wakeman kind of was, he was an engineer there. He now does some, he has a microphone company now. Yeah, that's right. I really feel like I've had some such great breaks because all the people I met were so supportive and Dusty was one of them. I worked there for about a year and it was such a drive. It was such a long haul for me. I, I needed to get a job closer to home. And Phil McConnell, who was managing Sunset Sound Factory, uh, he used to be the manager for the remotes at Wally Hyder. I knew him from Wally Hyder's. And um, I went in and said, you have have any work or he, he may have actually called me hearing that I was looking because there was an engineer there named David Leonard who had was sort of moving on he he had won some Grammys for some work with Toto or something and they needed and he had been assisting but also crossing over the engineering and they needed and they needed somebody to sort of take up the slacks 
Uh, so they hired me, and I don't know how long it was, but it wasn't so long after that that uh, Mitchell came in. He was doing, I forget the first thing, but I met him. I didn't work on what he was working on. I don't remember what it was. But we would meet each other out in the lobby and or reception and talk. And But somehow we got to talking and about music, and he said he had written a soundtrack. And I said, oh, well, you know, I've got a soundtrack that is just one of my loves of, of music. And I just love this soundtrack so much. I'll, I'll bring you that soundtrack. I didn't have anything to do with it, but, you know, and you can give me your soundtrack. We'll just trade music, you know? And um, <laughs> he, he brought in his soundtrack, which was a soundtrack to a porn film called Cafe Flesh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, which is amazing. It was a crazy film, but the soundtrack is phenomenal. I mean, I just flipped when I heard the soundtrack. And I still have the vinyl he brought me. It's probably so rare, you know, but it was, and still is just an amazing soundtrack. And the soundtrack I gave him was the soundtrack to Barbarella, the film Barbarella. Huh. Yeah, which if you haven't heard it, treat yourself to a oral extravaganza. <laughs> I'll have to go back and, and revisit that. I know the film. I just wasn't familiar with the soundtrack. Yeah, and no, I listen to the music without the film. It'll, it's insane. Anyway, that just got us like sort of connected, I think, um, if I remember right. After that, he asked me to do, he was doing a play and he needed some recording of drums because um, he was making cassettes that would be played at the play. You know, it's like cues. There was no money in it. I just did it for free over a weekend, and uh, that went. That was so much fun. And then he asked me to do. I don't know about the chronology, but then he asked. I think he asked me. It was he was doing a band called Crowded House and um, the first album, and I, I don't think they had two engineers that didn't last, but it, it lasted them throughout the project. And then at the very end of the project, the second engineer left. Um, I don't know why. But um, I got, Mitchell came to me and said, look, can you just finish? I just need a few overdubs, some rough mixes, and we're done. I said, yeah. You know, we, we were always out in the lobby during that record hearing, like, Don't Dream It's Over, and um, just all thinking, man, that's a massive hit. Don't Dream It's Over. And we were all singing out in the lobby, you know, hearing it come <laughs> through the doors, you know, um, and loved this, loved this band. And he asked me to come work on the last uh, couple of weeks. And I did, I, I came in, I, I recorded some stuff, I re-recorded some things, helped them get a better bass sound, I thought. And then I did rough mixes for them because they were gonna take a break before they mixed. And I, of course, I, don't, I haven't heard them since, so I don't know how they really are, but I, I roughed mix in the way that I kind of still mix these days. I did everything dry and kind of crunchy. Supposedly the label uh, and the band weren't happy at all. Uh, <laughs> the rough, with the rough music. <laughs> but anyway, that's besides the point. Um, that's sort of the start um, with Mitchell. And then he came and asked me to do a record with a band called the Del Fuegos, mm -hmm. who had Dan and Warren Zanes in it. Uh, Dan Zanes, you know, has gone on and done all sorts of wonderful records, children's records, and I think some records of his own. And Warren Zanes became a writer. He wrote that biography of uh, Tom Petty, 
he was the guitar player in the Del Fuegos, and that's those are, those are the guys I worked with. That was the first, I think, full album I did with Mitchell. Hmm. And we didn't stop working together for 14 years. You and Mitchell have a, a great career together, and you came on my radar. I will never forget uh, my good friend Josh Roberts, who's been on the show before. I was on tour being a drummer, and he was our tour manager, front of house sound guy, and he turned me on to the Latin Playboys. Hmm. Oh, man, you got to check this out. And the first time I heard it, I was just floored <laughs> at the 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 beauty of it the oddity of it the there was just something about it that pulled me in and he he was like do you know who mitchell Froom and chad blake are and i said no but if this is that he said yeah it's it's these guys plus it's david hidalgo and louis louis perez from los lobos mm -hmm. i was just in awe of the whole thing and it really put you on my radar so that years later to hear colossal head and kiko mm -hmm. That's when I became acquainted with your your style of doing things. So if you could sum up your relationship with Mitchell, what would you say? It's hard to sum it up in a in a short way. There's just so much. I, you know, I came in really green working with Mitchell, who I just consider um, an amazing composer and musician. Another lucky association, somebody who was in their working relationship had such integrity that, uh, you know, I never asked for anything. He would come to me, you know, I'd work f I, after two years of working or something, he'd come to me and say, look, Chad, I just think you're doing such a great job. I think you ought to have a raise. I think you ought to have, get more money. And then a few years, you know, doing a bunch of other records together, he says, you know, you're contributing so much to these records. I think you ought to get a point of, you know, engineering these things. And, you know, it was, it was always, it was never like, I want to do this, you do that. It was, hey, how did you like, how'd you, how'd you like that sound? I said, oh, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't, it, it's really not doing it for me. Well, I really like it, but let's, let's try something else. See, you know, what, what's it missing? And he would then ask me what, um, I said, well, let me do something. And then I'd do that. And he'd go, oh, no, that, you're right. I like that better. Or he wouldn't, or he'd say, you know, I, th I really think it fits the song better what I had before. And we'd all, you know, let the best idea win. And there was no ego. I don't, I don't like to say that because there was. There's ego in, in music and ego in bands and ego in production. You have to have it. So I don't want to um, make the ego to be a, out to be a bad guy. I don't believe that. But there was no um, irrational ego. It was all very reasonable. Like we'd all have yeah. a, Our egos were, I think, big enough and good enough to be able to say, you know what? Your idea is better. I, I do think your idea is better. So let's go with it. And I mean, that's how our sessions were. Um, and I, I soaked it up. I, you know, I came up with, he let me do the sounds. What are you going to do today? And I found things, I bring them in and he'd go, yeah, try it, whatever you want. I, you know, I found the Sans amp at Guitar Center and brought it in and started messing with it and go, let's try it on the first song. What are you going to do with it? I don't know. Let's put, put the drums through it. Let's put the sax through it. Let's put, and you know, it was never like, oh, well, that's too crazy or that. No, it was just, let's work it into the song. And then I'd watch how he worked stuff into the song or how he would hear the sounds and go, ah, and then adjust arrangement to fit the sounds. Or maybe I had to adjust the sound to fit the arrangement. It was never one thing or the other. But I'll tell you what, I, I would, I'd learned so much about arranging 
maybe not so much musically, but it is musically. I'm still not a composer. Uh, I can write bits mm-hmm. of music. I can do things like that, but it, I not fully fleshed out songs like he can, you know. And and um, but I I think I developed an ear for what I like in arrangement, which has really helped me with my mixing. Because I'm not afraid to mute, move stuff, you know, really drastically alter and mutilate sounds. Um, and that comes from working with Mitchell completely. It wouldn't have happened without me working with him. There's such a, a, a complementary relationship there. You know, you were talking about the the, the Anne, Anne Ryan books or Ayn Ryan books mm-hmm. and just being honest to yourself and with others. Do you think that that honesty, that willingness to tell Mitchell what you truly thought helped it seems like the way you're telling the story it seems that the two of you were just so natural with each other and open to one another and let each other have your space you know something that didn't develop is that was just from the get we just we just enjoyed working together and like i said he was a really good listener and i'm not just talking about to the music he was he was very focused he liked to do things you know he had a certain hours of the day you know, we worked from like 10 till 7, 7 o'clock. He was gone, you know. But in that time, it was focused, but not necessarily always focused in just the studio. He knew how to also take breaks, let people take breaks, talk for an hour. That's part of the studio experience and recording is you sit out in the lobby and and slack off for a while and talk about other things and then come in the studio and then have 30 minutes where you bang out a few takes work on sounds give people their space it you know when i think back on it that was the natural order of things to me this was a studio session um i later you know saw other sessions and saw other people worked and it was not the same at all there was i think we had a flow that was really comfortable it's really nice and i learned a lot from it fast forward to today you I know that that's a huge jump in time. So we'll get in the time machine and jump to this point in time. Mm-hmm. You currently live in Wales yeah. and you and your wife, and I believe you met your wife at Real World, Peter Gabriel's Real World. Yeah. She was a chief engineer at um, Real World Studios. Yeah, And you and the family live in Wales. And so you've been there for a number of years now. Uh, you continue to do mixing out of your home, out of uh, Full Mongrel. Yeah. Which has changed locations a couple times. Yes, I'm. I'm curious. You know, a lot of people are are well aware of of your of the fact that you mix in the box, but you do come from a full career of doing things on tape. And I'm curious, at what point did you realize I'd actually like to mix in the box? I don't think I ever said I'd like to mix in the box in the early <laughs> time. Um, it, it was. It had to do with what was happening in uh, the markets and stuff. You know, I was working at Real World. I had been in the big room for several years. I mean, I was parked in there, in the big room. It was wonderful. That's really the most astounding sounding room. And it's massive and windows to the outside. It's a wonderful place to work. And the atmosphere of what's there, you know, Peter Gabriel and everything that goes on around him um, was just incredible. But Come, what, 2007, 2008, I think, studios were starting to close, getting pinched, 
and I was made aware that deals were no longer available. And, you know, I did a lot of work there where I, you know, I'd do some things that would be full rate and then I'd make a deal on a, something that I really wanted to do that didn't have the money and they'd give us a good, a good rate, but that was something that they couldn't do any longer. And there was a couple of projects I did. I actually did a Los Lobos project there. I think it was this time, it's a record called This Time. They wanted me to mix that and, you know, they didn't have a lot of money to mix that. And it turns out the money that they had would only cover the studio for four days or five days at Real World. Um, hmm. And that's it. There was no money for me. There was no money for anything else. And I ended up mixing it. Luckily, it was you know only 24 track, but I had two sides of the desk because it was an 88 input desk. So I could have one mix on one side and one mix on the other. And you know, be sending it to them and mixing on something else and revising one other mix and and we got it done. We did it in those days. But it was Jackie who was saying, you know, this isn't gonna fly for very long. Jackie being your wife. Yeah, my wife. She knew Pro Tools. She was the Pro Tools head of the family. She said, uh, she was the one who said I really should set up a studio and get into Pro Tools. And it was pretty clear that. You know, that's the way it was going to have to go to be able to do the music that I wanted to do. So that's, yeah. So that's the path they took. So we did. Um, we set up a little studio up the road from me in a little sort of country business park. We were out pretty rural, um, but found a, a room in a little business park, a really nice little room. Got set up with Pro Tools. She helped out. And again, I, I've had good luck, I think. I worked in there. I did a, a two or three really low budget records. And I was trying to get, not mix in the box, I was trying to get a desk in there or some kind of summing because you know I th thought that was gonna be better. And I had ordered something and it couldn't be there in time. So I ended up mixing this record just in the box the way I had been. It was Suzanne Vega, she asked me to mix her record. I said, yeah, so I, I mixed that there. My first major label record in the box. And I thought it came out really well. It was hard for me. Which record was that? Beauty and Crime. Great songs. And, and I wasn't sure of my job in it. I really, you know, it was, you know, it was kind of fresh. And I was going mm -hmm. through plugins like crazy trying to figure it out. Mixed it, got it done. And it went on to win Best Engineered Record, non-classical, the Grammys that year or the following year, whatever, however that works, which just floored me but um you know <laughs> i thought wow okay that's pretty that's pretty cool you know and i have to say you know like it's you know that kind of stuff does it, it helps build confidence in, in what you're doing mm -hmm. you know i started really making the commitment because there's still things that bothered me about working in the box i was really having a hard you know it, was, it wasn't easy but i kind of made my commitment to it i said you know this is the future someday tape's not going to be available analog stuff is changing in the uk it was different because i people like ssl neve they couldn't continue making their old models because they outlawed they banned lead solder and that created a whole weird thing about components they couldn't they had to make things differently so even if they wanted to continue with a certain sound they couldn't they had to change components change the way they make their desks and things just because of that you know i just thought well analog's gonna go it's all, you know, I, I, I want to be in the nose cone of the rocket ship and I want to be know how to do this 
because it's going to happen. Maybe it's not there yet. I love the convenience of it. And that's been my, it still is my mission. It hasn't changed. I still, I'm still working on it uh, in the box. But I think it's gotten a lot easier. One of the things that helped me was finally realizing that with all this stuff coming out with plugins, you know, all these vintage skins and vintage promises and knobs on your screen and all this stuff that it's, you know, here, you know, get the sound of tape, get the sound of Neve, get the sound of API, you know. You know, I just finally said, you know, none of this stuff sounds like that <laughs> to me. Um, yeah. But I thought, you know, that's a good thing. I, I, why would I want it to sound like that? This is new. These are, th these are new materials. This is a new platform. And it has new possibilities. It has new limits. In some ways, it has less limits. In some ways, it's more limiting. And there's a lot of give and take with, you know, between analog and, and digital. I don't have a preference sonically. Um, well, maybe I do. I prefer digital, but I like what analog does a lot of the time. But I hate it what it did to my drum sounds when I listened back. I really <laughs> struggled with tape and low end and it coming back not how I wanted it. When I first heard good digital, I went, that's it. That's, I don't even have to think about it. I get the sound at the desk, it goes to digital and it comes back exactly like I got the sound, which is what I want. I don't want it to change too much at that point. Anyway, that's me. There's lots of people that do. They want it, they want the change there. That's cool. Anyway, another getting off track again here. Sorry. But that's okay. But for me, the plug-in thing is um, this is new. And forget about that it looks like a knee. Forget about that it looks like a studer or an Ampex tape machine. Just forget about it. What does it sound like? Does it sound cool? Yeah. Tweak it until it sounds cool and then move on, you know. You know, to get into a discussion about, you know, whether something sounds like the real thing or not, you know, how pointless, <laughs> how absolutely, it's moot point. <laughs> you, you, yeah, you find out, you find yourself stranded way out there on moot point without a light, without a flashlight. <laughs> <laughs> about a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. Um, I'd like to talk a bit about you uh, being diagnosed with cancer at some point. And can you tell me about that and where you're at today with that, how you coped with that? I was lucky, you know, it's a, 
it's in, in the scheme of things and the in the scheme of things of what you can get in in the cancer part of the universe is um mine is really pretty small i got to uh, base a tongue cancer i forget what they call it something differentiated car cell carcinoma of that i don't know i can't remember that thing but um so a throat cancer that turned out to be hpv positive which is the um human epiloma which is the same thing that causes uh you know canker sores and cervical cancer in women so it was a viral cancer i wasn't a big smoker i wasn't a big drinker i mean i did drink and smoke the good news with that is that hpv positive cancers are more treatable so that gave me a really good that gave me a 70 percent chance of survival rate 70 percent. that's about as good as you get when you have diagnosed for any kind of cancer i'm told is they don't really go over that but you know 70 percent um yeah and it was scary uh we didn't know what the, the the prospects of surgery or chemo radiation in an area that was so close to my ears uh was really scary chemo the kinds of chemo that were on offer from the nhs over here and the way that they do things at the nhs over here was not to my liking a lot of contradictory advice that we couldn't handle and and the chemo radiation had a big chance of giving me very bad tinnitus and the radiation could um wasn't as targeted as it could be it could be it could take out my left ear mm -hmm. and luckily we had private insurance which w was what we ended up going for and you know i mean it's a sad state of affairs i'm really grateful that i had it i'm really sad that other people don't it enabled me to have a better radiation machine that targeted the cancer and a experimental chemo which was really good with the hearing business and i've come out pretty much unscathed in that regard cancer's gone four years later i've got one more year of checkups and i'm officially cleared um the only thing it's done really is given me this funny voice where i now kind of sound like tom waits which things could be worse huh? <laughs> <laughs> things could be worse yeah well that's that's amazing that's that's fantastic that you're uh, able to rid your system of it and uh and continue working without greatly affecting your hearing and and the work that you do i'm curious in thinking of your survival of that i'm i'm thinking of what are your thoughts on on your survival in the music industry over the years what are some takeaway thoughts you have about an audio professional such as yourself and surviving in this world of audio I, I don't know i'm amazed that i'm still going people still ask me do you know i i've you know i've told you before i i see that i'm getting offers and i and i see that for i've been working for 30 years you know but emotionally you know whatever my little demons are in myself that don't allow me to actually fully grasp the um you know that i'm you know for all this time i'm working you know i if if i don't have work you know lined up my first thought is well that's it i'm i'm done no one's calling uh it happened a couple of, you know a month ago i didn't have there was a like a period i didn't have any work for like no calls coming i said that's it you know we're done what are we gonna do you know so i'm always thinking that so I'm surprised at my survival. I'm surprised when people um, book my seminars at 
Mixed with the Masters, you know? And I've been doing that for, what, almost 10 years? What, when, when did I start that? Almost 10 years. Nine, hmm. eight, eight, nine years. And um, every one of them's had, you know, participants, and I've done sometimes twice a year, and um, they're full, and I'm... <laughs> Same with that. I'm always calling them up saying, hey, is this going to happen? Do you have enough people or are you going to have to cancel it? You know, they're going, no, we got, we got enough. It's fine. Okay. So I'm, I'm not sure how to answer the survival thing. Because um, emotionally, I'm, I just think, you know, wow, how has this happened? I don't know how I've survived. I really couldn't tell you. I've probably done what everybody is. I've done my own thing a lot. I've tried to put myself in doing somebody else's thing and fail miserably. You know, so it's not as if I'm like this uh, beacon of, you know, like, well, I'm only going to do my thing and that's is it and that's all you're going to get. You know, I've, I've I've tried lots of things. Um, maybe that's why. Maybe, maybe you know, there's, people don't see a lot of the failures. I do a lot of stuff, you know, maybe people don't hear about. I'm lucky enough to do some major label stuff or a good amount of late major yeah. label stuff. Every now and then it hits. Like I get, I get something that throws me back into the spotlight, like the Black Keys or Arctic or the Monkeys. Arctic Monkeys. Arctic Monkeys. Um, you know, or, uh, Delta Spirit, and then then I get calls. And uh, but you know, even when I haven't, I mean, those things haven't been around. I've been doing stuff for you know, low budget independents. I just keep, uh, I just keep going. You know, just keep on keeping on. <laughs> Do you know what? That's another thing of Mitchell's, you know. He once told me, he just, he said, you know, persistence is everything. So there you go. You just keep doing it. In the studio over the years, your uh, experimentation with mechanical filters and working with the Sans amp and just, you know, being open to new things, the patience level of others around you that might be expecting traditional results. How have you handled people's uh, expectations and your experimentation? Have you put up with any kind of uh, resistance to your style of doing things, whether recording and or mixing? It'd be different in each one. The recording, you know, uh, ultimately, no, no, no resistance. People didn't know what to think. I got another story if you want <laughs> Uh, let it we, let it fly. Mitchell and I were doing a record. This was over at Ocean Way. I think it was Pat McLaughlin, a Pat McLaughlin record. Another great fucking songwriter, <laughs> an amazing guitar player that we worked with. And we had hired a drummer named Jerry Marotta, who mm. is a um, New York guy, New York Italian, who played with Peter Gabriel on that on the security record, like. Shock the Monkey and San Jacinto and, you know, pretty heavy, bloody drummer. He came in and I had set up a drum kit and my contraption at the time, which was a big metal plate, steel plate, curved metal plate that I had found on the street on Yucca Street. We called it the Yucca Bone. Um, it's curved. And I used to set a pipe in it that came out so it looked like a satellite dish and then put mm -hmm. a mic in the pipe. I had that set up in front of the drums, a couple of pipes around the drums. Um, and I saw him walk, and, and I'm a big fan of Jerry Marotta. He's coming in. I'm, I'm so scared, man. I'm like shaking the whole day before he got there. And he walks in. He's carrying a snare drum. Oh, and also we had, you know, the drum, drum doctor, the guy who did all the drums for the sessions. Anyway, there were two guys that did the drums for everybody. And... We'd had them bring, we didn't know what Jerry Murata was going to want, you know? 
So he had like eight snare drums out there and kick drums. And he, anyway, he walks in holding a snare drum with some cello tape wrapped around it or some cellophane and a pot of yogurt. He walks in past the control room. I see him walk in and I know it's Jerry Murata. And he walks out to the studio and I see him and he gets out there and he looks at the drum kit and then he looks over at the contraption and then he looks over at all the snare drums. He goes over and looks at the contraption, the yucca bone, and then he turns to the control room and I'm standing there. And Jerry Murata is a very intense individual in the most wonderful sort of way. <laughs> um, and um, he, you just get within two meters of him and you feel, oh, <laughs> your blood goes up, you know. And he comes in the control room and he looks at me. He goes, uh, are, are you you the engineer? And I said, yes, Jerry Murata. I'm, I'm such a big fan, man. I'm so happy. Can, can you come with me? Um, yeah, my name's Chad. I'm, I mean, come, come with me. Follow me. <laughs> and he takes me out to the studio. Takes me out to the studio and he says, okay. He points to the snare drums and says, what is that? I said, um, what do you mean? He says, well, what, what are they there for? So well, we didn't know what you'd want. We didn't know if you, you know, what kind of, so we just asked him to bring, you know, a few things that you could. So see that snare drum? And he set it down on the ground. It's just a biscuit tin Ludwig, you know. See that, see that snare drum? That, I, that'll be fine. I use that on everything. I don't need this, you know. Whatever, what, it doesn't matter what you want. Doesn't, I can make that sound however you, you tell me what you want, and I'll, I'll tune it, you know, whatever you need. I said, okay. He says, okay, come here. What's that? I said, well, it's, <laughs> called, it's called the yucca bone, and it, it's just the thing, like a mechanical filter to alter the sound of the drums. I do stuff to it, and he says, okay. And then, you know, we start doing takes. First, the band gets there. We start recording, and he, you know, he doesn't ever look at the yucca bone or anything. He just uses his snare drum, and he's amazing. He's just playing like we're all just going, holy shit, you know. You know, you can ask him anything, tempo-wise. Um, what do you want? You want this to speed up? Anything you want? Ask. Can you just go a little lighter on the hi hat and this? Side? Yeah, no problem. Let's do it again. You know, and then it's exactly what you asked for. And he finally comes in. And he says, "Can I listen? Can I listen back?" Yeah, sure. He says, "Can I? Can I sit there?" Meaning my chair. I go, yeah. I get up and I sit him down in the chair. And he says, can you play the tape for me, please? And play the tape. Plays a song. Okay. You take out the drums. Take the drums out. I'm, you know, in the monitor section. Take it. Okay. Put the drums back in. Okay. Take the guitar and the bass out now. Okay. Can I, can I hear, can I hear that now? Um, put the guitar and the bass back in. And let me hear it without the vocal. And he starts moving stuff himself, you know. Okay, okay. Um, can I just hear that thing? Can I just hear the yucca bone? Solo the yucca bone for him, and he listens to it. And he, he just turns his head and looks back at me and goes, smiles, first smile of the session. <laughs> he just goes, he just smiles, and he turns back to the screen and says, you know, sounds good, sounds really good. And he gets up and... <laughs> And nobody, nobody's saying anything. We're all just sitting there with Jerry Murata in the room, and he's going through asking all this stuff, and we're going, what's he doing? He's asking, you know, without the drums, without the... And he has a forceful voice. Bring the drums down, please. You know, take this out. Solo that. What's that, Yakubon? You know, and we didn't know what to think. But it turns out that that's just Jerry Murata, and it's like when you know him, it's just his... Uh, is incredibly charming individual and a hell of a drummer. And what a 
a confirmation for you, you know, here you are, oh, I've got the yucca bone out there. And he seemed to be more irritated with the multiple choice of snare drums than he was with your mechanical filter. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, he's not he's not fussed. He's just not fussed about a lot of things. And um, Pete Thomas is another drummer who I worked with who embraced everything. He, you know, I mean, he stretched me. Like, he would come in and have a piece of paper that had a design of a drum kit he wanted to build for that song. And I go, okay. And he'd do his thing with gaffer tape and bits of percussion and, you know, elastic bands, whatever, you know. And they'd say, there, you do something with that. <laughs> and, <laughs> and what was funny is that he would then, you know, play down the song once, and Mitchell would go, you know, this isn't going to work. And he'd go, okay, and then he'd do something else immediately. It wasn't like, oh, fuck, we just spent half an hour doing this. He'd just build something else. And then I'd distort something and go, yeah. So, yeah, again, in the, in the recording side, I didn't meet with a lot of resistance. People really embraced it and egged me on, really, and brought their own thing to it as well. The mixing thing is another story. I, I've had a lot of resistance in mixing, a lot of times where I've done my thing. still happens today. I do my first mix. I have my way, or, you know, and then I get a call saying, you know, can you tone it down on the distortion on the, sna- on the drums and maybe the panning's too wide, can you bring it in and not so much of the distorted compression and... Uh, you know, I still get that. <laughs> yeah. Can you get rid of all that Sansamp? Have you ever had somebody say that? They don't say Sansamp specifically, but um, yeah, I have had that. And I do. I call wow. them up and I say, so what is it that you've heard that you like? Why did you want me to mix this record? Why? For what? What is it that you want from me? You know? And I've lost gigs. I've lost lots of gigs doing that. Still. In doing your thing. Doing my thing, yeah. I lost six, yeah. maybe, it was seven, no, seven or eight gigs last year. Yeah. Some of them after I had done half an album. I don't know why it took them that long to figure it out. But, <laughs> oh my God. You know, oh. six, six, seven songs in, somebody says, do you know, I think we want to take a different direction on the drums and go more like the rough mixes. I said, you know, you got the wrong guy, man. I, I don't know how to make your drums sound like the rough mixes. I, you know, anyway, that's another story. Um, but yeah. All about being honest. All about being honest. Be open. Talk to the people. And if you, um, it doesn't mean you don't have to do the gig. I can, I could, you know, I've done plenty of gigs where I have, I've taken it off and said, yeah, I can finish this for you. You know, mm. I, but I tell them, I don't like it. And they still ask me, what do you think of this new mix? I don't like it. I like my first, I like my first mix way better. Okay. Well, we like this one. I said, oh, great. Let's move on. Chad, this has been great. It's, I know that. You know, for the listener and for myself, this is an abridged conversation, really. I mean, you have so many stories, you have a, so much experience, and it's fantastic to talk with you. At some point, we'll just have to do a follow-up. Yeah, fine. Anytime you like. Once again, want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me. I could talk with you for hours because of, of the number of questions I have, but in the interest of keeping a condensed show, we'll end it there and uh, I, with the promise that I'll follow up with you at a different time and we'll, we'll talk about different aspects of all of this, but uh, thank you again. Cool. No, I, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. All right. Enjoy the day, my friend. Likewise. Take care. Bye-bye. Chad Blake here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I've waited a long time to say that, my friends, and uh, what a thrill. Yeah, absolute pleasure and an honor 
to have him on the show. Um, wow. So uh, 200 down. Well, what do you think? Another 200, shall we? I don't know. Let's see where it goes. There's a lot of ground to cover. There's a lot of people to talk to. So uh, once again, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for all of your support. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for spreading the word. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. I'll tell you one thing, I can't get away with leaving this show without saying thanks to these guys. I'm talking about Cliff Truesdale for the music, Chuck Smith for the voice. Both those guys have been with me from the very beginning. Yep. So a sincere thank you to, to Cliff and Chuck. And uh, thank you again, everybody. We'll see you at 201. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.